Greetings and welcome to episode 27 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a topic that is going to be likely familiar to everyone who listens to this podcast. The title of our episode today is India, England, and the Opium War. And no doubt most of you have heard about the Opium War before. We are going to approach this in a slightly different way today, however. What we are beginning to talk about now is we are beginning to talk about a new rupture all right, a major rupture with the past that occurs over the course of the 19th century in China. All right, there have been major ruptures in Chinese history before. Okay, uh, early on, around the, the year zero or so, uh, our first major rupture uh, occurred with the introduction of Buddhism into East Asia from India. That occasioned a revolution in ideas about the afterlife, ideas about morality, philosophy, uh, daily spiritual worship, uh, so many things. Uh, institutional transformations and the rise of monasteries, the building of pagodas, new forms of patronage. All right, These are things that hadn't existed before Buddhism uh, entered into East Asia. There were other ruptures as well. Uh, major transformations such as the Great Southern Migration that occurs from roughly 200 AD to 1000 AD, in which you have this massive demographic shift from the, the Yellow River Valley, essentially, uh, to the Yangtze River Delta and the creation of this new cultural uh, economic powerhouse elite in the Jiangnan area that northerners would be uh, wary of for you know another thousand years to come, and yet military power re remained in the north. Okay, so we've seen these sort of major ruptures before, huge transformations uh, that have basically redefined what it means to be Chinese. If we if we could uh, treat the history of China as we treat the history of the West, we would actually have a totally different name. Uh, other than China, to describe the East Asian continental mainland during these eras. Okay, we wouldn't just say China during this period, China during this period, and China during that period. We would actually just come up with brand new names. Okay, uh, but we don't do that, so I have to go out of my way to keep on trying to emphasize the ruptures, uh, the changes, the transformations that occur. Well, now we're going to get what you might refer to as the third, depending how you, how, on how you define it, maybe the fourth major rupture slash transformation in the history of Huaxia civilization. That's going to be the impact of the West. Okay, the impact of the West. We are going to reimagine the history of the impact of the West on China and China's entry into the modern world as we know it today. Now, previous historians, a whole generation or two of professional Chinese historians in the 20, mostly in the second half of the 20th century, um, they like to focus um, on explaining what happened, China's dramatic and traumatic entry into the modern world. They, like to, uh, they often tried to explain it uh, in moralized terms, heavily moralized terms. All right, both Westerners and then uh, uh, Chinese intellectuals themselves, they would say things like uh, the Chinese Empire stagnated, Oriental stagnation. Uh, the 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 Qing emperors were too proud. They 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 were, they, they were too arrogant, and they like to pull out that letter from Emperor Qianlong to King George III that he gave to Lord McCartney in 1793. We talked about that in the episode on the Great Divergence. They'll pull that out and they'll go, look, this guy can't see beyond his, beyond his own nose. He's so full of himself. Of course, it was pride that prevented the Chinese from changing. Or they'll say it was corruption. All right, the Chinese political system engenders too much corruption or indecision. Okay, and with, with all these previous explanatory frameworks, 
The impact of the West on China became interpreted as China's moral failure to recognize the enlightenment, the changes, the benefits of interaction with what they couldn't help but regarding as inferior barbarians because they were so damn proud and arrogant, and therefore it was a moral failure to adapt. And we all have to live with the consequences of this today. Okay? Today, in this episode, we're going to take a different approach, and I will acknowledge at the outset that the way that I've interpreted this and the way that I like to teach this episode of The Opium War uh, owes much to the wonderful scholarship, a wonderful book written by uh, Matthew Mosca, a uh, professor of, of uh, uh, Qing history, uh, now at the University of Washington. Hey, my alma mater. Um, and in this book, he discusses a way of looking at the impact of the West that acknowledges Qing dynasty rulers and officials as smart, logical, rational actors who made what they regarded as intelligent decisions based on the extent and the accuracy of the information and intelligence they had available to them at the time. Okay, everything that happens, we're not going to interpret it in moral terms here. Corruption, pride, stagnation, all right, that sort of stuff. We're going to see these people as smart, highly educated officials who wanted what was best for their empire and acted upon what we in hindsight know was to be faulty information. Now, we're going to understand why. Why did they have faulty information? Why were they unable to grasp the threat of what in hindsight will appear to be an obvious threat and a gross miscalculation. But hindsight, as you know, is 2020. It's so easy to look back in time from the arrogance of 200 years of distance and be able to say, well, of course it was obvious that the West was going to be able to defeat you in battle and the West was superior. All right, No, it was not obvious 200 years ago, and we need to acknowledge that and reconstruct the original perspective of rational actors. Okay, so today... We're going to go back and we're going to revive the original geopolitical and intellectual context to help us understand why the Chinese, why the Qing dynasty took so long to respond to what in hindsight appears to be an obvious threat. Okay, our time frame now, our time frame. We're going to be talking about roughly 1757 to 1861. Generally speaking, the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, a hundred year period. Okay, the Opium War is going to occur in 1839. All right, 1839, we're leading up to that. But we begin with 1757 because there's an interesting convergence of geopolitical events that occur in the last couple years of the 1750s, this, this unique decade. Now, anyone who knows what happens in 1757 from the Chinese perspective, from the perspective of, of the Qing dynasty, well, if you, if you can answer that question now, I'll give you extra credit if this was a real class with real tests and all that sort of stuff, which, which, which it's not. Uh, 1757, the Qing dynasty, their armies finally conquer the Jungar Empire, the Jungars. Uh, variously spelled J-U-N-G-A-R or uh, D-Z-U-N-G-A-R. Uh, the Jungars were essentially Western Mongolian tribes that created a pretty vast empire in what is now Western Mongolia and most of Xinjiang and other parts of Central Asia. All right, we might think of it as the last great Mongolian empire, Mongol empire. Okay. Yes, Mongols were also uh, a part of the conquest elite of the Qing dynasty, 
Um, and that's partially why the Qing dynasty got involved in trying to vanquish the the the, uh, the uh, Jungar Empire is precisely because the Mongols who had joined the Qing conquest of China uh, were the Eastern Mongols, and they continued to feud with the Western Mongols. And so the Manchus and the Mongols and the Northern Han, who composed the Qing conquest elite, said, we got to take care of these Western Mongols. And for about 100 years, from the middle of the 17th century to the middle of the 18th century, successive Qing dynasty emperors, you know, with uh, the uh, Kangxi emperor, the Yongzheng emperor, and then finally the, the uh, Qianlong emperor, they're all trying to deal with this Jungar mongol threat. Okay? Um, and in 1757, they finally win. They finally vanquish the last of the Jungars. Now, geopolitically, what is the significance of this? This is how the Qing dynasty ends up taking over all of Mongolia, including the western part, and today, Xinjiang. Look on a map of China today. Xinjiang is that great, huge northwestern part of China with the huge Taklamakan Desert in the south and all those mountains and steppes in the north. It's the last part of China, Chinese territory today, before you hit Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, all of those, all of those countries. Okay. Um, and it was like probably 75-80% uh, Turkic-speaking Muslims at the time, with Kazakh nomads in the north and what, were, what are now known as Uyghurs in, in the uh, southern part of Xinjiang. Okay, And then the Jungars also had close relations with the Tibetans, because as Mongols, they followed the Tibetan yellow hat sect of Tibetan Buddhism. And so they had a patron-priest relationship with various lamas in Lhasa. And as a result, this is also what will prompt the Qing dynasty to try to uh, gain its own influence in Tibet. This is very, very important to understand why Chinese borders look the way they do today. Uh, it's the Qing attempt to neutralize the last of the nomadic threats that leads them into Western Mongolia, leads them into Xinjiang, and leads them ultimately into, into Tibet and begins the process of incorporating these places into the modern Chinese state, even though the Manchus, the Qing dynasty, is long gone today. Okay, back to 1757. The Qing finally conquer. They, they vanquish the Jungar Mongols, and they enter Xinjiang. Okay, that's going on in East Asia slash Central Asia. At the exact same time, the same couple of years, the last couple you know, uh, uh, years of the 1750s. What's going on in India? Let's think about this, because these two worlds are going to collide. What's going on in India? The British East India Company, not the crown, this is still sort of a private uh, 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 commercial enterprise, okay, with a special charter from the British crown. The British East India Company conquers and consolidates its control over the Bengal region, of sort of northern eastern India, okay, where they, where they will eventually set up their, their capital of what's going to become the British Raj in Calcutta. All right, now let's think about different ways that we can interpret the, these two major consolidations of power of empires that we know are going to clash one day and the different types of trajectories that they're embarked on. All right, the Qing Dynasty conquest of the Jungars in Central Asia is one of consolidation. Okay, consolidation and completion. The Qing dynasty said, the emperor said, we are completing a great enterprise. Da, yeah, a great enterprise. And if you ever want to read about this great enterprise in detail, you should read these two massive volumes by uh, uh, the well-known Chinese historian Frederick Wakeman, um, who wrote two huge volumes. Well, I think it's over a thousand pages 
you know, charting the entire conquest and consolidation of East Asia and Central Asia uh, by the Qing Dynasty emperors for these hundred years from the mid-17th century to the mid-18th century. All right. So from their perspective, from the Qing perspective, the conquest of Central Asia, the defeat of the Jungars in 1757, is a time in which you're finally able to breathe a sigh of relief. We did it. Ah, the threat is finally neutralized. All right. This is the, the apogee. This is the height, the zenith of Qing power, of Qing expansion. All right. Now they're going to switch to consolidation mode. All right, let's just sort of take care of what we have. We have far more territory than we ever dreamed we were going to get. And now we got to take care of it. No more conquests for us. We're done. Let's sort of, you know, take stock of what we have and try to manage it well now. All right, that martial vigor, that martial uh, uh, idea that you're going to need to be constantly ready to go to battle and maybe conquer new lands and neutralize new enemy threats, that's over now. It's over. Okay, the Qing dynasty has basically succeeded in recreating a unipolar world. There's only one superpower as far as they are concerned. Oh yeah, there's lots of small little states. There's uh, pesky, annoying Russian traders and whatnot and outposts along Siberia and Manchuria. But basically speaking from their perspective, we're the only game in town. All right, we don't have any major threats anymore or rivals like we did with the Jungar Mongols. All right. It's a unipolar world now from their perspective. From the British perspective, this is just the beginning of express of uh, uh, expressive. <laughs> That's a good one. Of ag aggressive, aggressive expansion in this for the sake of profit. Remember that lecture on the Great Divergence. The Europeans are heading out and sailing all over the world in desperation to get around the Ottoman monopoly. They're trying to find new lands, new markets, new places where they can force themselves upon populations that don't need them. We don't need you. Get out of here. And they say, no, but we, we need to be here. <laughs> we need to expand beyond Europe to get a leg on all the other empires that we're dealing with. And we can't go overland across the Ottoman Empire. And so they're aggressively, violently forcing their way in and becoming middlemen in pre-existing markets around the world. And uh, along the way, they bumped into the new world where their germs were able to kill nine out of every, every 10 people. And, oh, wow, look at this. Millions of square miles of land to exploit. Lucky us. Okay. So it's the beginning of aggressive expansion. For the Europeans, this is a multipolar world. They are, they are acutely aware from the beginning that they are in competition with the Dutch, with the Spaniards, with the French, with everyone in Europe. Holy shit, we got to get as much as we possibly can, consolidate our gains, and then get the next one, or else the Dutch are going to get it, or else the Spanish are going to get it, or else the French are going to get it, and then we'll fall behind. It's a matter of life and death. It is an existential struggle for the European empires that are starting to arrive in India and East Asia at this time period. Okay? So the perspectives in 1757 of the Qing dynasty and the British and all Europeans are very, very different. And, 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 and this matters. One sees it as a unipolar world in which there are no major rivals. We can breathe a sigh of relief, kick back a little, and consolidate our gains. The other sees it as just the beginning of a multipolar world of intense competition, a life and death existential struggle of many, many different states. And we better be keen and ready to go and constantly marshalling our resources for the next battle.
Okay? There is a tragedy here and an irony from the Qing slash Chinese perspective. Okay? Fierce European multipolar overseas competition has coincided with Chinese or inner Asian Manchu unipolar ascendancy. Unipolar ascendancy. In which the, 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 the mindsets that are going to play into your political decisions, your policy decisions, how you treat foreign powers, the collection of intelligence is very, very different now. With, for the Chinese perspective, tragic consequences. Tragic consequences. Okay. Now our story ends about 100 years later in 1861. What happens in 1861? Well, the year after, the Qing dynasty gets a pretty big wake-up call, although, as we'll see, not the ultimate wake-up call. Uh, the sacking of the Summer Palace, the flight of the Xianfeng Emperor uh, out of Beijing because you have an army of British and French soldiers who are coming in to Beijing, actually invading the capital, trying to enforce the uh, 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 treaties that had been signed in the wake of the First Opium War, uh, the burning of the old Summer Palace. Uh, finally, the, the Qing Dynasty is going to say we need to make a major institutional concession to these you know, distant barbarians. And in 1861, they'll create a new, a new foreign, foreign, uh, foreign relations institution known as the Zongli Yamen. Remember the Yamen, we just talked about that in the, in the last episode, just means a government office. This is a big government office. Zongli uh, is, you know, the, the office for managing of all affairs. And actually has a much longer name in which the, the, the full English translation is something like the office for managing uh, all the affairs of distant barbarian nations or, or something like that. I, I think actually they don't use the word barbarian. Uh, all the distant nations uh, beyond the seas. What the Zongli Yamen is, is the institutional embodiment of superficial conformity with Western diplomatic norms. And the end of using the tribute system and its explicit inequality and Confucian hierarchy to deal with Western powers. All right, that's where our story is going to end today with the, the imposition by the West upon the Chinese of a way of interacting with foreign states that invokes a pretense, just a pretense, of equality and mutual representation. The first Chinese equivalent of a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, to put it that way. All right. Okay. Let's reconstruct the original Qing Dynasty geopolitical perspective. What did they know? When did they know it? And how did they get that information? And what sort of consequences would it have? All right. Most intelligence, what you know about the world outside of your borders, came to the emperor in Beijing through three routes, okay? You had overland caravan routes through the, uh, the deserts and mountains of Central Asia. And these often ended up in the city, the oasis of Yarkand, which is now in southwestern Xinjiang. All right, Yarkand is also the jumping off point if you want to take some god-awful, you know, 15-hour bus ride on uh, uh, dangerous precipices and cliffs to get to Tibet. I think it's closed off to foreigners. You can't take that anyway. Uh, but regardless, give you some idea of where it is. It's a little bit southeast of Kashgar. All right. Uh, it's one of the last major Qing dynasty towns that they control before you go westward into Central Asia or further south into Tibet. Yarkand is the Qing dynasty administrative center of southern Xinjiang. 
All right, and there you're going to find Afghan merchants, Pashto merchants, Turkic-speaking merchants, Hindi merchants. It's sort of a congregation spot for merchants all over Central Asia and South Asia. Okay, um, these guys are going to bring rumors, intelligence from India. Okay, it's going to be imperfect intelligence, but Yarkand is going to be one of the places that they get information um, for, of what's going on in India, because ultimately that's what we want to understand here. What did the Qing Dynasty know about what the British were doing in India? Because the British base in India is going to be the base from which they prey upon East Asia and become the ascendant power in East Asia. Okay, uh, what did the Qing Dynasty know about the British presence before it was too late? Before it was too late, because eventually it's going to be too late. Okay, so Yarkand, overland caravan routes. There will be uh, some intelligence that will come through uh, the Himalayan passes of Tibet. Not a lot, but some. All right, Nepal, Tibet, this region here, uh, north of India, to the extreme north of India, uh, that's going to be a place in which you can learn some things, although the British are, at this point, uh, uh, they are, they're occupying uh, the southern parts of India, not the northern parts. So again, it's, you know, the, all this intelligence is twice or thrice removed from where the British are actually stationed. The British are in the southern parts of India, or southeast parts of India. All right, and then finally... You're going to have intelligence that comes by the sea, Guangzhou, just across the border now from Hong Kong, all right, the, the extreme far south of Qing Dynasty borders. Um, that's how you're going to get information coming from uh, private uh, sailors, private merchants who ply their wares down to Southeast Asia and come back. Remember, there aren't really uh, formal government ships and envoys that go over the sea. We had that during the Zhenghe expeditions of 1405 to 1433, and they were scaled back as wasteful. All right, these are wasteful. There's really no point for us to be uh, 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 undertaking such huge expenses to send these fleets across the known world, to Southeast Asia, to India, and to the east coast of Africa. And they were pulled back. Okay, but private merchants continue to, to, to sail that route uh, continuously, nonstop, going to Southeast Asia, where you also have lots of Chinatowns. Uh, lots of major Chinese communities where you can trade, uh, both with the overseas Chinese and with the, the indigenous peoples who live there, whether it's Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, you know, or at least the pre-modern equivalents of all of these places. Okay, so these are the three ways they're going to get information. What sort of information do they get? How do they first hear about the English? Well, unfortunately for the Qing, no one comes up and says, you know what? Uh, we have intelligence from three sources, and all of them are, 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 are talking about these people known as the British, or the English. And the English uh, are these white-skinned people, uh, you know, who look a certain way, and they all come from the same island nation halfway around the world, with the, uh, and they're all ruled by this monarch. All right? No, there was no cohesive picture of who the hell these people were. In fact, it was an extremely contradictory and confusing composite image of what the hell is going on in India. First from Yarkand, southwestern Xinjiang, the overland caravan routes. They heard that there was a white-skinned people who control the Indian port cities and some of the maritime trade that eventually makes its way to Guangzhou in the South China Sea. What were these people called? Not the English, they were called the Hongmao. The Red Hairs, a name that had also been applied to the Dutch 
when the Dutch had uh, set up some of their uh, 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 um, fortifications on the southwestern part of Taiwan in the early part of the uh, um, 17th century. You have the Dutch on Taiwan. They're only going to be there for about 40 years. Uh, but nonetheless, well, you know, they were also referred to as the red hairs, and they really were. You know, there probably were more of the Dutch who were red hairs than there were of the English. Uh, but regardless, see how confusing it is already? The name that gets applied to the English in India um, is the same that got applied to other foreigners. Okay, um, via Tibet, through the contacts in you know that cross back and forth between the, uh, the Himalayan passes, Nepal and Tibet to Lhasa. They learn that there is a tribal offshoot, people who may be somewhat related to the Hongmao, to the red hairs. But they called them something different. We say, these people, it seems like it's a different tribe of the red hairs. And this different tribe of the red hairs are, are referred to as the Pilung. P-I-L-E-N-G in modern day pinyin transcription. The Pilung. Who the hell are the Pilung? Turns out thanks to the wonderful scholarship of Matthew Mosca, who examined this, it turns out that Pilung is an Arabic-Persian word, Ferengi, which in turn is the Arabic-Persian translation of Frank, the French. Frank, maybe we have French, Frank, Ferengi, Pilung. Isn't that fascinating? But the Qing Dynasty emperors weren't aware of this etymology. It was just the Pilung. All right, there, so now we have two, uh, mention of two different types of white-skinned people somewhere in India doing business. We have the red hairs and we have the Pilung. All right? uh, or if you want to translate everything into English rather than Hong Mao and Pilung, you would say you have the red hairs and you have the Ferengi. Not exactly sort of your CIA debriefing of the president with all the clarity that you can expect of having, you know, intelligence agents on the ground throughout the world. And then finally from Guangzhou, across the border from Hong Kong in the South China Sea. They said, we have white-skinned foreigners as well that visit our port, that visit the seaports. And they appear to do trade with India. They seem like they pick up goods and they, and, and they bring them from India and they sell them here in Guangzhou and then they buy tea. The British were buying a lot of Chinese tea. That's where the British are going to get their addiction to tea. And it's going to be the whole start of the Opium Wars, trying to find uh, some way to balance out the outflow of silver to buy Chinese tea for the British. And there they said that, uh, yeah, these white-skinned foreigners, uh, we, we know them as Gangjiao. Gangjiao. The characters for Gangjiao are literally, the Chinese characters for Gangjiao are literally port feet. <laughs> Right, like, like a seaport, port, port feet. And it was said that Gangjiao uh, wasn't supposed to be used for its, its, its semantic meaning. It was supposed to be used for its phonetic uh, pronunciation. I said that this was the Chinese transliteration of the word country, the English word country, which the British used to refer to the products made in the country of India. Now, even with the benefit of 200 years later, and wonderful archival research by top historians of China and the Qing Dynasty. Isn't this confusing as hell? All right, we have the information that the Qing Dynasty has about what the hell's going on in India is that there are red hairs, there are Ferengi, and then there are Gangjiao, <laughs> port feet people. Um, and all of them are white skinned, and that appears to be the only thing that really. Uh, 
makes them similar. That's the only thing they have in common. But just color of skin doesn't tell you a whole lot. The Manchus and Mongols and Northern Han basically, you know, looked roughly the same as far as skin tone, you know, and hair color and that sort of stuff. Are they the same people? No. And then the these three different sources of information, of, of intelligence, um, weren't even shared across the empire. It's not like the uh, uh, Qing Dynasty military officials in Yarkand said, oh, we're hearing about the red hairs. Let's make sure that we send information about the red hairs down to our civil servant officials down in Guangzhou because they might have to know this information. And let's also make sure we share it with those Qing Dynasty officials who are stationed in Lhasa. Um, and then all three of them are going to put together information about the red hairs, the Pilung, and the Gangjiao, the port feet people. No. No, no one thought to do this. It didn't make any sense. Why would you do that? There's no major threat. This can't be all interrelated. And even if it was, what sort of a threat would it pose to us? Okay, the Qing Dynasty is not sharing information across all of its far-flung borders. They are in consolidation mode. They are in frontier mode. They're treating each section of their border, which is huge, as discrete, separate parts of the empire. You deal with problems locally, okay? Whereas the Westerners are treating their, their distant borderlands, their colonies, uh, places that they want to colonize with a frontier policy. They're saying this is all interrelated. If we don't take it, the French will. If we don't take it, the Dutch will. And we have to coordinate information across all of our far-flung far territorial interests, to make sure we have the most up-to-date information about what, you know, what the local people look like, what languages they talk, what sort of, you know, uh, commodities we can trade with them, what the French are doing, what the uh, Italians are doing, what the Spaniards are doing. We got to have all this stuff. It's, 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 a, it's a foreign policy. Okay? Treat everything as integrated. Everything has an effect on everything else. The Qing are not looking at it this way. It's a frontier policy. Each frontier deal with separately. Okay. And the British are basically being treated here as greedy merchants. They're just greedy rogue merchants looking for a profit. Okay. Not a very big threat. They just want money. And you can deal with them as we deal with distant nomads who are not part of some great federation. Give them a little trading post here. Let them make their dirty, greedy money. And then they'll be on their way. Okay. No Qing official was sufficiently alarmed by the appearance of three seemingly distinct white-skinned groups, the Hongmao, Pilung, and Gangjiao, plying the Indian Ocean trade to take an active interest in obtaining better intelligence. The Yarkand officials know only of what's going on in northwestern India. Guangzhou officials only know of what's going on uh, from southeastern India through the sea. India, to most Chinese officials, is still viewed primarily as the land where Buddhism came from. Okay? Uh, there's not a whole lot of geopolitical interest in India. The Qing Dynasty rulers don't even know that northern India is ruled by uh, Muslim conquerors from Central Asia who are known as the Mughals, the Mughal Dynasty. Okay? Um, this isn't, you know, today with Wikipedia where you type in India and find out what's going on there. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to know what was going on in India. We're not going to go to battle with them or even have a whole lot of official trade with them. Okay. In fact, at one point, 
the, the Qing dynasty received requests from some of the princely states in the Himalayan eras, uh, in, in the uh, Himalayan foothills, the areas around uh, Nepal, southern Tibet. They're saying, we're getting engaged in some battles with some of these Pilung, with some of these Ferengi. Um, will you come, since, we're, since we've kowtowed to the emperor and we send tribute on a regular basis, will you come help defend us against these white-skinned Pilung tribes? And Beijing said, no. No, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to get involved with these petty borderland frontier disputes that are going on. Deal with it yourself. And in fact, Tibetan monks, Tibetan Buddhist monks who wanted to go from Lhasa to holy cities in northern India where the ruins of Buddhist monasteries and whatnot uh, could be visited. They had to uh, ask for permission to go to India. And the emperor in Beijing said, no, no, we don't want you to go to India. We're afraid that once you're there, you might collude with you know, other Buddhist monks maybe in the Himalayan foothills um, to separate from Qing oversight. And we don't want you to do that. We want to be the sole patron of Tibetan Buddhism. So they're actually actively discouraging links between Tibet and northern India. Uh, we have enough territory as it is. We can barely manage what we've got. We don't want to be drawn into more battles that might force us to take over parts of India that we, we then have to rule. Right? Totally different mindset. Totally different mindset. Now, there were other warnings that the Qing emperor received during this time. One of them came in 1802 from a Portuguese Jesuit missionary who was working in Beijing. And he, you know, this, this was a European. And he's fully aware of who the British are and what they're likely to do if they become powerful enough. And he tries to warn the Manchu emperor of the likely consequences of ignoring these white-skinned foreigners who are in India. He says, quote, all Europeans know the ferocity of the English. Formerly in India, they plotted under the pretext of trade to destroy a great country called the Mughal Empire. At first, they borrowed a small territory to live upon, but afterward, they and their ships gradually grew more numerous. Finally, in 1798, they swallowed up this country. This land is near Tibet, so China should be able to know about this. All right. There were some, you know, other Europeans actually were the ones who were most lucid about the threat of, you know, their own rival Europeans, because they're thinking in terms of an intense, competitive, multipolar world. The Qing Dynasty is not. Meanwhile, the British expand uh, their opium trade with southern China. I already told you the British are are, are taking a lot of tea. They're they're pouring a lot of silver into China. A lot of the silver is coming from the New World that the Portuguese and the, and the, the uh, Spaniards have mined. Um, and the British are spending their silver in China and buying up tea and taking it back to British. And the British are getting addicted to tea, which they still are today. All right, and they're going to try to turn the tables on this. How are we going to turn the tables on China? We're spending way too much money. This is a, a trade deficit that we're running with China. This is not okay. And so they say, well, we're, we're addicted to Chinese tea. Uh, let's get them addicted to something. That's the only way that we can balance out our addiction to their tea. Unfortunately for the Chinese, what the British are going to hit upon is a truly addictive product. Not, you know, sort of metaphorically addicted to tea, but literally addicted to a new drug. And as all of you have probably heard before, this is going to be opium. Opium grown in India. They will find this is the perfect solution to reverse the trade imbalance of silver occasioned by the British passion for Chinese tea. And over the last, you know, 50 years or so, or, you know, 
first couple decades of the 19th century, the British are selling Indian opium at Guangzhou in the southern port of the Qing Empire. All right, and people are becoming addicted to it because it's an addictive product, obviously. And the trade imbalance is being balanced back in favor. Well, it's being imbalanced in the other direction towards the British. And this is what rulers really care about is money in the end. And when the emperor in Beijing uh, finds out that, uh, you know, we're running a massive trade deficit with these pesky sea Mongols, that's how the British would you sort of be seen, you know, as these, these Mongols of the sea, nomads of the sea who just want, uh, you know, a quick profit. They they dart in and out really quickly. They win these, you know, ferocious quick battles. And when you try to attack them, they run away. They're hard to pin down. They're sort of seen as like the, you know, sea Mongols, really. Um, and now these sea Mongols have hit upon something quite sinister and morally dubious. And it has the effect of creating a massive trade imbalance. Now silver is leaving the country. And worse, it's leaving the country for a drug. It's leaving the country for a drug. And so finally, in the 1820s, when you have this opium trade becoming a major concern for the Qing dynasty, some Chinese scholars attempt to put all the pieces together of who the hell are these people selling opium and getting us addicted and forcing us to run a massive trade deficit. Interestingly enough, it's not Qing officials who actually hold active posts actual positions in the bureaucracy. They're constrained by their official position in the way that they can share intelligence, who they can communicate with, bureaucratic rivalries. It's going to be actually Han, Han literati, who have passed the Jinshir exams, are eligible to become officials, but now you have so much overpopulation and so many Manchus and Mongols and people who are buying their posts running the government, that they might not be able to ever get a real position in the government. Or perhaps before they actually get a position, they have to wait a while. Like they may not have had to wait a while in the old days, but now they have to wait five years before a a magistrate's post is going to open up. These guys then start examining the available data. They want to try to make themselves attractive. Look, I can really rule the empire quite well. Look what I've already figured out about current geopolitical entanglements. In the 1820s, these Han statecraft scholars, that's sort of how they, 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 they refer to themselves, Jing Shi, um, they start to put all the intelligence together. They also start reading Western missionary translations of Western works that they are translating into Chinese. All right, you're going to start having your first Western works of literature, essays, political theory, these sorts of things uh, translated into Chinese by Western missionaries who are based in in the uh, southern parts of the Qing dynasty. And it's in the 1820s that some of these Han scholars are going to be the first to understand that the red hairs, the the Ferengi, and the portfeet people are one and the same. They are the British. And they've created a commercially lucrative and military state in India known as the British East India Company, later referred to as the Raj. Okay. Now, their conclusions initially, however, even though they identify clearly who the British are now, these are one and the same people, and they're all over the place. However, they still don't see the British as an existential threat. Based on what they've been able to learn, they say these are you know, more or less water-based nomads intent on profit. So let's just use the time-tested methods of uh, nomadic frontier management. The British, they say, are a loose consortium of freebooting sailors, 
who seize territories in haphazard and violent fashion, and their only agenda is to make a profit. The Raj, they said, appears unsustainable. It doesn't resemble any known model in East Asia for a successful empire. Sure, it certainly doesn't look anything like the Qing. The British, they said, has no substantial agricultural base. At least it appeared to them that there was no substantial agricultural base. Their, their, home, their, their home country is an island. And a tiny one at that. And in India, they appeared to be based mostly in seaports. It wasn't clear if they controlled agricultural, agriculturally productive lands in the interior of South Asia. Second, they said there's no clear hierarchy of, of, of military command or administrative restraint. The boundaries of Britain, of this British Empire, are not contiguous. It's separate and cut off around the world. They have all these tiny little pieces of land and islands and ports all over the place. None of them are physically connected. It didn't seem like what an empire, a powerful empire that can sustain itself, looked like. It feels like a lot of freeboating sailors, pirates, who are creating you know, these mini little states set up around the world, loosely connected to one another. How can you possibly have a systematic Han Feidza-like, legalist-like uh, uh, bureaucracy? A well-oiled machine. I said, no, the British don't give us any evidence that this is a formidable, internally coherent and consistent empire. They say also, they constantly engage in warfare. They're constantly conquering people to insert themselves as middlemen. And these conquests create ill will everywhere. Everyone they conquer must hate them because they've been conquered by force. Unlike us, we have literature. We have philosophy. We have morality. We have Confucian gentlemen. In which, in theory, obviously not necessarily in practice, in theory, uh, we are a benevolent force for good in our rule. But of course, they're not familiar with any sort of British literature. Um, and so they don't really understand that the British might also have be heirs to a long literary tradition that talks about these things. And it seems like they only want profit. So let's control them by shutting down markets or granting these quarantined small zones of trade to limit the impact that they can have. One official, Lin Zixiu, Lin Zixiu is going to be the imperial commissioner who was eventually sent from Beijing to go down to Guangzhou and solve the opium problem once for all. He's attuned to the statecraft scholarship of these private literati, and he reads it and he concludes the following. He says, the British are run by a 20-year-old woman. <laughs> in the Confucian world, a, a woman in power, a queen. queen. He's talking about Queen Victoria in the 1830s. Um, you know, that they, they're inverting the natural hierarchy. All right? when, when women are in power, an empire is on the decline. Okay, that means that things are, are not operating as they should. And she's 20 years old, my God. The only time women ever achieve serious political power in Chinese history, they're usually, you know, they have to be in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. They've got a little long time because they have to give birth to the men that they're going to rule through. It takes a long time to cultivate that kind of leverage over the men in your life. You know, so they're usually pretty old when women gain power in Chinese history. A 20-year-old queen, a 20-year-old woman who seems to be uninterested in foreign affairs. She's only been on the throne for four years. And her... Her servants are rogue merchants who seem to lack a true centralized army and a chain of command. And he had the belief 
that these opium traffickers, these, these British ships selling opium in Guangzhou, he thought they must operate without the blessings of London, of their own capital. There's no way, he said, that a monarch, even a 20-year-old woman, there's no way any monarch would knowingly condone a trade in drugs. So she must not know about this. We'll do the British monarch a favor by imposing moral rectity on this situation. We're going to solve the problem for her, and she's going to thank us. Because a moral sovereign that commands true loyalty and power would never condone the opium trade. Even their own missionaries condemned this trade, which was true. So everywhere in their ranks, Lin Jishu said, we see dissension, discord, decentralization. They'll collapse like previous nomadic empires that were decentralized and constantly fighting among themselves as well. All right, they're not going to last long. And so we get the Opium War. All right, this is the extent of what the Qing Dynasty is able to understand about the British on the eve of the Opium War. In 1839, Lin Zhu is sent from Beijing as Imperial Commissioner. He says, teach the British, teach these you know, impetuous sea Mongols a lesson. Solve the opium trade and do their monarch a favor. And so Lin Jishu goes down to Guangzhou and he reenacts the Boston Tea Party. He dumps, he seizes the opium and dumps it into the water. Now, how do you think the British are going to respond to that? Not very well. You mess with our prophets, we mess with you. And they go to war. And for the first time, we see the effects of the Industrial Revolution, of the Great Divergence, play out on the battlefield, in which the British are able to send naval forces all the way around the world. They can project their new power all the way around the world, and they advance to the Bohai Gulf, the gulf just east of Beijing, just east of modern-day Tianjin. That's the first time that a foreign army has approached the capital of Beijing since the 1690s when they were fighting the Mongols still. So the Qing finally say during this opium war, not only did we lose a battle, they also approached Beijing. They have the ability to do this. Their, their armaments are superior. We need to take these guys seriously finally. This is a true empire that draws resources from many different places. However, even though with each individual skirmish, an accumulation of more intelligence, the picture of the British gets clearer and clearer. They're still not taking the lessons away from this that we might think they would with the benefit of hindsight. The lessons of the Opium War, this defeat, were not what later historians once imagined. Greater familiarity with Britain in war taught the Qing that the British in India, though they might be a formidable power today and they could win individual skirmishes like the Opium War, they're not going to be a formidable power tomorrow if we wait them out and help to exacerbate their internal contradictions. After the war, they learned more about who is actually serving in, in the British army. And they said the following, there's only 8,000 white men, real English, and these 8,000 white men command an army of 181,000 Indian sepoys. Indian soldiers are their main military force. And these are conquered people. And the Indians, they said, are treated much worse than the white guys. They take the most risks in battle. We saw this with our own eyes. They're the ones who had to charge the forts. They were the ones who got shot down, not the white guys. They take the most risks and get the fewest rewards. <clears throat> and they caught some of the Indians who were fighting for the Britishes too. And they interrogated them. 
And they found out that many of the Indians had, you know, bad feelings towards the British, as you might expect. And they said, these guys aren't loyal. They're just fighting because they're forced to fight or because of their poverty. And these interviews with the Indian sepoys also uh, made them think that they weren't all that intelligent. They saw their darker skin, and they immediately associated that with dark skin prejudices in Chinese history as well. And they said, the Indians are stupid mercenaries. They said, quote, they referred to them as black. They said, quote, the black foreigners, the Indians, the black foreigners are the talons and teeth of the white foreigners. That phrase, talons and teeth, where have you heard that before? That was in the government yamen. Jiaoya, that's the phrase, that's the term that was used to describe the clerks and the runners and how they were looked down upon as, uh, you know, those who prey upon the weak. Right, so the, uh, the the impression of the British Empire, uh, although they they did win this battle, by no means did it convince anyone in Beijing that this is an existential threat to either our dynasty or our civilization, the Qing dynasty uh, politically or Huaxia civilization culturally. The British have no true loyalty, no morality, no governing philosophy, run by a twenty-year-old woman. Relying on uh, black, stupid mercenaries from a distant land in India. They peddle drugs. Okay, this empire may win individual battles like nomads do, but it's built on far-flung exploitative relationships, it's morally dubious commercial agendas, and no centralized cohesion. So let's deal with them like we've dealt with pesky nomads before or how pesky nomads have been dealt with previously in Chinese history. Let's give them a little port, a little, a little a trading enclave in which they can get their greedy little profit and be on their way so we don't have to fight them in battle. The Treaty of Nanjing, signed in 1842, was not seen by the Qing of, 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 of the day as the humiliating document it would later become. It was seen as a pragmatic policy to deal with frontier troublemakers, appease their greedy merchant profit instincts, and isolate them to peripheral ports. Okay, The so-called unequal treaties, bu ping deng tiao jian, as they'll later become known. That's a much later phrase. The unequal treaties were not seen as unequal. This is the, this is the first so-called unequal treaty. The Qing just saw it as a pragmatic means to an end. This is Chinese diplomacy as usual. This is how nomads were once dealt with. Okay? It's the same thing the Song Dynasty did with the Khitan and the Jurchens in the north. <laughs> of course, you take that analogy to its end. The, the Khitans and the Jurchens, they'll use these little trade enclaves to become richer and wealthier, gain more followers, and then eventually destroy the, the, uh, the uh, Song Dynasty. Or at least the Mongols will do that for them. Um, so, you know, if you take that analogy all the way to the end, it's not looking good either. Now, after this first battle, first Opium War, which is not sort of a wake-up call for the Qing Dynasty, although they learn a lot more about Britain, uh, most of what they learn doesn't convince them that this is going to be an existential threat, although it is a threat we got to be aware of. Um, in 1860, I'm sorry, uh, in 1860 to 61, you get a, a renewed sense of a greater threat that these guys pose to us. It's known as the Second Opium War or the Arrow War. I think the Arrow was the name of the boat that was involved in a search and seizure mission uh, where the Qing Dynasty tried to seize some opium or something of a ship. Um, and I, I believe that occurred in 1856. But generally speaking, the Second Opium War of 1860 
is the British and the French pressing for more privileges and trying to get the Qing dynasty to implement the existing concessions that they already granted in the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842. And the British and French are saying, you're not upholding your end of the bargain. We're not getting as many benefits as we thought we were going to get. Okay. And so they're looking for a pretext to start a war. They're, they're itching for a fight so they can have new treaties. And the, the, the incident with the arrow, with the arrow ship, um, which occurs, I believe, again, in 1856, that's the pretext that they use um, to start a war. And this time, they invade Beijing. The British and the French, led by Lord Elgin, the son of the Elgin who uh, took the marbles from uh, the Parthenon in Athens um, uh, 60 years earlier, uh, Lord Elgin leads a British and French expeditionary force uh, to Beijing, and they say, we're going to teach the emperor a lesson this time. He needs to learn a lesson. Um, and they march to what is now known as the Old Summer Palace, the pleasure grounds of the emperor, northwest Beijing, now a tourist site you can visit and see the, the destruction that the British and French levied upon uh, the ruins. They go there and they sack and burn and loot the Old Summer Palace. And they say, this is the best thing we could do to teach the emperor a lesson. This is the Xianfeng Emperor, by the way. Xianfeng Emperor, one of his consorts is Cixi, uh, who will bear him, the, his, 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 his son and heir, the Tongzhi Emperor. And this begins her rise to power when the Xianfeng Emperor uh, suffers major political setbacks and depression and flees Beijing um, and then later dies. This is when Cixi actually starts her ascent to power and gets control over young, impressionable uh, sons and nephews and whatnot, uh, so she can rule in their name, it, it, it begins here. All right, so she's going to be the major power from this point on. Um, but, you know, they go out and they sack the old summer palace um, and try to get more treaties um, and new concessions. And one of the major concessions that they want this time is they want the Qing dynasty to acknowledge the British as equals. So you can't call us barbarians anymore. You can't use the word E to refer to us. Um, and we want to conduct diplomacy with you on the terms that Lord McCartney first proposed to the Qianlong Emperor in 1793, but he rudely and arrogantly denied us. We want full representation in Beijing. We want an embassy. And we want to be dealt with, not through your condescending tribute system in which we have to acknowledge our inferiority and do all these humiliating rituals before the emperor. We're going to stand up when we meet with your envoys and your diplomats. Um, and no one's going to kowtow to anyone. The way we do business in Europe is everyone is, in theory, equal. In reality, we're not. And we don't treat each other like that. But in theory, we're all equal. And we have equal representation, ambassadors and whatnot in all of our countries. And that's how we want to deal with you. And so this is where we end our story for today, with the creation of the Zongli Yaman in 1861. This is the uh, Qing dynasty conceding Western forms of diplomacy for use with Western countries. Okay. Now, again, this is not a total wake-up call for the Qing dynasty. The British threat, the French threat is now bigger than before. It's serious. Okay. But it's still not an existential threat. The Qing dynasty still says, we're going to use our old tribute system with everyone except the Western countries. This is just for the Western countries in which we're going to treat them like equals. Everyone else comes to us on the tribute system still. And we're going to use those rituals and those forms. And everyone else we're going to refer to as E, <laughs> barbarian still. Okay? Um, and so this is not the huge wake-up call that we might think it is in hindsight. That's going to take another 30 years, actually. 
as long as it's the British and the French winning battles, you know, halfway around the world and just setting up little enclaves, little treaty concession, treaty ports where they can make a profit, they're not going to see these guys as representing a, a major threat to Huaxia civilization or the Qing dynasty as a whole. In fact, the foreigners will help the Qing dynasty uh, suppress major rebellions that occur in the 1850s and 1860s. You may have heard of the Taiping Rebellion before, in which 30 million people are going to die. It begins in the southern parts of China, led by Hong Xiuquan, the guy who uh, takes uh, 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 missionary pamphlets in Guangzhou, fails the exams, reads the pamphlets, has a dream in which he imagines he's the younger brother of Jesus Christ, and then sets out to recruit followers on a millen millenarian uh, mission to overthrow the barbarian Manchus and restore the Ming Dynasty. The British will actually help the Qing Dynasty suppress these guys, because they have a vested stake in propping up the Qing Dynasty. The more treaties, this is something you have to understand, the more treaties that the Qing Dynasty concedes to the foreigners, the more the foreigners have a vested interest in making sure that the dynasty that granted those concessions doesn't fall. <laughs> so paradoxically, the more the Qing Dynasty loses these little skirmishes with the British and the French, okay, the more they're giving the British and French an interest in upholding the survival of this dynasty. Because if the dynasty falls, who knows what will happen to the unequal treaties and the concessions that you procured in those treaties. Okay, so the British are going to defend the Qing. They'll fight the Qing whenever they feel they need to. But they don't want the Qing to fall. They want the Qing to survive. They want the Qing to be united, but weak. That's the, the prime scenario to exploit them. You don't want some new power to overthrow the Qing and then have to deal with that new power. That's unpredictability. You don't know what might happen. Okay, so these are the ironies involved. First imperfect intelligence, then better intelligence, then losing these battles, but not necessarily seeing it as an existential threat, particularly when these new concessions that you give the British actually make the British want to keep you in power. Okay, the foreigners are not an existential threat. It's only when they fight the Japanese in 1895, another East Asian power who had traditionally been seen as inferior, only then will they say, holy shit, <laughs> this is an existential threat. Okay? But the West is not an existential threat. Now, what we're going to see is what's going to happen now. The next time we're going to talk in our next episode, we have about a 30-year period before the Sino-Japanese War breaks out in 1894. We're going to take you from 1861, the creation of the Zongliyaman, to, 18, uh, to 1894, about 30 years, in which the Chinese, the Qing Dynasty, is going to start uh, 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 concluding that uh, they're not an existential threat to us, but we do need to emulate them and learn certain things about their society and their civilization and their technology so that we can become powerful as well. Okay, and they're going to start to send envoys to Europe to learn about how are these European countries organized? How, what sort of factories do they have? What can we learn from them with an eye towards adapting it? And so next time, we're going to see the first Chinese envoys, Manchu Chinese envoys, being sent to the West, to Europe and America. And they're going to be gradually coming to grips with the scale of the threat they are facing, but their responses to this threat are going to be very different than we might expect and filled with surprises. So please join me next time for Qing Envoys to the West in episode 28 of Beyond Huaxia. Xia. <laughs>